This is the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burns Center at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. The topic that we're going to discuss today is that of hypothermia. Uh, there was a rather spectacular um, uh, emergency landing or plane crash, depending on how you look at it, uh, recently here in the United States where a U.S. Airlines jet on a very cold day in Manhattan landed on the Hudson River. And all the occupants of the plane uh, were uh, basically unhurt and were able to evacuate um, into the river on the wings. Uh, and this certainly brought up the, the uh, idea of what is environmental hypothermia. We talk a lot about hypothermia now in regards to its therapy. And we've recently had a discussion uh, in a podcast on the use of hypothermia uh, for the post-cardiac uh, arrest patient. And there's also a growing body of literature about the use of hypothermia in patients who have um, not only brain injuries, but uh, CNS lesions. Um, and um, how that's applied in the neurointensive care unit. But the topic I want to talk today is what is the treatment uh, and the problems associated with environmental hypothermia? Somebody who may come in as a cold water drowning or a trauma patient or a homeless person who's perhaps found in a snowbank. And having done uh, my training in the northern part of the United States and uh, treated many patients who've come in with profound hypothermia after being passed out or um, found in a snowbank or being a victim of a motor vehicle crash with a prolonged extrication or, or delayed in being fined. So accidental hypothermia, what is the actual definition of it? And uh, hypothermia is, is really, by definition, uh, as an unintentional decline in the core body temperature below 35 degrees centigrade or 95 degrees Fahrenheit. And there are some uh, conditions that uh, are associated with hypothermia, and basically those can be broken down into two uh, big groups. Those conditions where the uh, patient has an intact thermoregulation and those conditions where the patient, for some reason, has impaired thermoregulation. So let's look first at the those patients who have intact thermoregulations, and that would be environmental accidental exposure to basically cold or extreme temperatures, and that would be cold water immersions, outdoor activities with physical exhaustion, uh, and patients who may have inadequate indoor heating because they're homeless uh, or they're impoverished. They may live outdoors or they may live uh, uh, in an abandoned building and, and not uh, obviously have a adequate heating. Uh, other conditions that will have intact thermoregulation but be associated with an increased risk of the development of hypothermia are different endocrinopathies and metabolic disorders. And these include hypothermia, uh, patients who have uh, hypoadrenalism, panhypopituitarism, uh, patients with anorexia nervosa or protein malnutrition, as well as hypoglycemia, and those patients who have diabetes mellitus uh, with a neuropathy. Now, the patients that I take care of have intact thermoregulation, uh, but have uh, the potential for developing rather profound uh, hypothermia, and those are patients with burns. Uh, other patients who've had uh, dysregulation or loss of their dermal integrity, uh, erythroderma patients, patients with psoriasis. Now, let's change gears a little bit and, and look at the patients who have impaired thermoregulation, and this would include par patients who uh, are on certain medications or on drugs or intoxications, uh, certainly patients uh, with, who've intoxicated with ethanol, uh, patients on phenothiazines, tricyclic antidepressants, barbiturates, neuromuscular blocking agents, and this is certainly relevant and important in the intensive care unit. Um, uh, patients with clonidine, toxic doses of lithium uh, will also uh, result in uh, some hypothermia. 
um, and certainly anesthesia, uh, anticholinergics, and patients who have uh, suffered from carbon monoxide poisoning uh, are at uh, predisposition for hypothermia. Um, there are patients with chronic debilitating conditions um, that predispose them, um, patients with uh, just outright old, uh, patients with heart failure, renal failure, alcoholism, head trauma, um, patients with CNS uh, uh, lesions such as strokes or tumors, paraplegic patients, certainly patients with Parkinson's disease, those with multiple sclerosis, and then there's always our patients who have sepsis. Um, so that is a, a breakdown. It's a rather long laundry list of those patients who you should certainly be thinking of, of the patient being at predisposition for the development of a, a environmental hypothermia. How you go about uh, approaching a patient with hypothermia is going to depend really on on the classification. Is it mild, moderate, or severe? And, and really, uh, mild hypothermia is those patients who have, say, a body temperature between 32 and 35 degrees centigrade. And these patients will typically manifest themselves by having increased tone. They'll be shivering. Uh, they, they may have an increase in their heart rate, rapid breathing. Um, and they have something called a cold diuresis. Uh, and this is going to be important because uh, we need to explain what a cold diuresis is and, and how it really impacts uh, our management or the actual resuscitation of the patient um, uh, who is uh, retreating for hypothermia. Patients will also have a, a bradycardia and a decrease in their uh, minute volume, uh, which means they, they can also, in addition to having, as we said, rapid heart rate and rapid breathing, as we get progressive, we'll see that heart rate start slowing down to the point where we're bradycardic. And again, this cold diuresis will actually uh, can cause a uh, hypovolemia or dehydration. Um, generally, the, the approach to these patients is external rewarming, uh, things just as a blanket and a warm environment, and usually only rewarming techniques are, are necessary. We don't typically need to be more invasive than that. Uh, and usually these patients will recover well um, and uh, if there's no systemic uh, complications from the hypothermia. Now, active external rewarming rather than passive rewarming uh, should be used in patients when uh, passive rewarming is not successful. So you're putting this patient on a, a warm blankets or we use these bear huggers. Uh, patients who have poiclothermia uh, or, you know, basically a core temperature less than 32 degrees centigrade. So obviously now we're not talking about this mild uh, hypothermia. We're talking about condition that's much more severe. Uh, and, or when the patient has cardiovascular instability, you know, are they having hypotension from the cold diuresis or volume issues, or are they having some poor cardiac performance from the bradycardia associated with hypothermia? Now, moderate hypothermia, uh, we are defining as a temperature between 28 and 32 degrees centigrade. Uh, for those of you who are stuck on Fahrenheit system, that's between 82 and 90 degrees Fahrenheit. These patients will have a progressive slowing down of the body functions. Typically, you won't see any shivering. The patients will be rigid. Uh, their mental status will be attunded or comatose, and they could be hypotensive, and they could have that lowering of the minute ventilation where they're actually hypoventilating. Um, basically, you need to start with your ABCs. I'll always go back to your ABCs and uh, address your, your basic life support type of interventions and advanced life support is required. Because the patient, uh, because of, of their decrease in metal status, there may be a decrease in upper airway tone and the ability for them to uh, protect their airway, and therefore you may need to intubate the patient just to protect their airway. And you'll also use that later on, which we'll talk about as, as a method of potentially rewarming the patient. Uh, this 
this will allow you to assure that the airway is protected. You can then um, ventilate them out of their hypoventilation by assuring they have an adequate mid ventilation. If you don't know what mid ventilation is, that's basically your tidal volume times your rate. Um, and that gives you the, your liters per minute mid ventilation. You also need to be worried about um, um, the patient um, gastric contents uh, because of uh, their, their altered mental status. They, they're at higher risk for development of an aspiration. Um, the other thing that the endotracheal tube certainly does is allow you to provide warm humidified gases. And this is a very uh, uh, effective way of rewarming patients. And typically when patients will get cold in the operating room, this is one thing you need to really be mindful of because what we do is we turn the operating room up to, you know, 85, 90 degrees, uh, and you know we may use French fry lights that we like to call them, um, and maybe even bear huggers. And we we've talked before about, about how we can cool patients down. Well, you transfer heat through ways of what's called conduction, convection, and radiation. And uh, conduction, much like electricity, is that if I'm putting my hand on something that's cold, I'll lose heat by trying to conduct. Uh, my temperature into that colder item. Those of you who go camping, you may have what's like a thermorest mattress. This is a small, thin air mattress, basically, that's probably about an inch thick, and it's not really designed so much for comfort, so you're not sleeping on the, the hard ground, but it's so you don't sleep on the cold ground, because when you're sleeping on the cold ground, you're actually trying to warm the ground up. You're trying to transfer that heat, and by having that thermorest air mattress there, it's acting as basically a thermal barrier, and so you're not losing as much heat. This is why it's important that if you're taking care of somebody in a pre-hospital setting and they're hypothermic, that you really want to get them off the ground. Uh, not because of you know our insensitivities of having a patient lay on the ground, but as long as they're on that cold, hard ground, they're going to continue to try to transfer heat. This is the, the idea of conduction. Now, convection, we've all heard about convective ovens, movement of air, um, and uh, that's uh, one way that you can transfer heat. We talked about cooling patients. Um, and this way we're talking about warming patients. And this is how somebody who's in a hot room on a, a night and they have a fan blowing over the body, uh, when I was a kid, we didn't have air conditioning, and you know we would have a fan in our room. Well, does the fan actually lower the temperature in the room? Well, how does it? There's, there's no way to explain that. But what the fan does is by creating a current of air uh, over um, the body, you're actually transferring heat uh, through... Um, convection. Now radiation, you know what radiation is, is that if I have a, I, might, I go outside, I'm trying to radiate my heat out uh, and I'm trying to heat the room by radiation. This is one of the ways that uh, the French fry lights work or elevating the, the temperature in the room. Um, so you're basically decreasing the, the gradient of temperature, basically um, the transference of heat. If, if I make the room temperature as close to body temperature, there's not going to be a, a, a difference in heat. This is how people can get heat stroke um, when it's uh, hot out. We've done podcasts on this. I'm not sure on IC rounds, but I know we, we certainly have on the PHTLS podcast. Um, if you've ever worked in a hot room with some of these plastic gowns that we're using now when we're taking care of patients and an idea to prevent infectious disease, the nurses are wearing basically these plastic gowns and the doctors that are kind of like garbage bags uh, made of similar type materials. Well, when you have that on, you get really hot because you can't radiate that heat off. So conduction, convection, and radiation. One of the things that by using a, a heated ventilator circuit, an average adult male um, uh, basically has a total body surface area of about 1.8 to 2 square meters. So when you're trying to heat the body through 1.8 to 2 square meters, you're, you're very limited with a finite 
area, but the surface area of the lung is, is dozens of square meters. And when you're using humidified gases, you're able to transfer that heat over a much larger surface area than when you're trying to apply or use the, the techniques of conduction and convection radiation to the, just the body because you're dealing with just, again, that 1.8 to 2 square meters. So now I want to talk about this issue of, of this cold diuresis or the intravascular volume depletion. And this is re reasonably common in hypovolemic or in uh, cold patients. And what happens is, is that during the cold diuresis, you get the, the kidney has a decreased ability to basically concentrate the urine. Uh, and there's a plasma shift to the extravascular space. And, and this is combined with a decreased secretion of antidiuretic hormones. So all this really kind of creates kind of a perfect storm where you get an inappropriate diuresis um, because you get the volume depletion from um, uh, fluid to the extravascular space. So it's almost like a third spacing of fluid that you might see following a major injury or major operation or a burn. And at the same time, you're getting this increase in urine output because the kidney is not able to concentrate the urine. This, uh, at that combined with the ability for the, the body's not producing as much antidiuretic hormone. So those three things, okay, inability to concentrate the urine, decrease ADH production, and extravascular volume shifts set a patient up for intravascular volume depletion. So you have to really kind of resuscitate this patient. And when you go by about resuscitating them, a normal saline is preferred to lactate ringers. Um, and um, uh, this is one of the few times you'll actually hear me say this. Um, but the reason why you want to use saline over lactate ringers is because during through the hypothermia, there's a decreased ability of the liver to actually take the, the lactate and metabolize it to bicarb. Um, so what would happen is if you're giving somebody a lot of lactate ringers, and this happens more commonly than I per care to mention, is that people always equate an elevated lactate with poor oxygen delivery. And so what they say is, aha, we need to give them more fluid. And people forget the fact that lactate requires metabolism by the liver. So somebody could have a shock liver, they could have a major uh, liver injury, uh, or in this case, hypothermia. And what it is is that you need to actually change your fluid over. Um, there are a, a variety of ways of warming IV fluids. Uh, I think what most most hospitals use now are, are what's something called a level one um, uh, fluid warmer. This is kind of a neat device, and the way the level one fluid warmer works, it's kind of a neat trivia question, but it works with something called a countercurrent heat exchange. It's actually very much like the leg of an Arctic wolf. How is it that a, a wolf uh, can stand on the ice, an Arctic wolf, and, and not get hypothermic when all the blood's going to the foot, getting cooled and coming back? Is that it works basically through a countercurrent exchange system, very much like the kidney. So, um, uh, if you take this wolf's leg, for instance, you have an artery that's running down the leg. You've got a vein that's returning up. And the vein that's returning up is carrying blood that was down onto the ice, and it's very cold. But as the artery and vein are running side by side, heat is transferred from the warm arterial blood to the cold venous um, blood and basically try to preserve the heat. When you look at a level 1 infuser, there's a, a cylinder there, and warm water is flowing in one direction and uh, cold and the cold IV fluids flowing in the other and basically you're warming the fluid in that direction. There's all kinds of ways that people do it. There's microwave ovens can be used to, to heat fluids up and, and I, I'm sure there's some sort of joint commission violations about that and there's some concerns as well as that you're getting hot spots uh, in the fluid. Um, 
one of the things you really want to avoid is early potassium replacement, and this is really because uh, the safe clinical predictors of changes in electrolyte values during uh, rewarming, you just really aren't very sure. Hypothermia may mask some EKG changes uh, induced by potassium levels, and the other thing is that the immobile hypothermic patient is really predisposed to development of rhabdomyolysis, and we've talked about what rhabdomyolysis is, is that if you have a patient who's hypothermic, they're, they've, uh, they've been in the cool, they're more likely to break down the muscle, more likely to release pigment in their their uh, urine, which is poisonous to the urine, but remember, if muscle breaks down, it's releasing uh, uh, myoglobin, and it's also likely to be releasing potassium as well, and that rhabdo, uh, that myoglobin certainly predisposes us to development of acute tubular necrosis. Now, let's focus a little bit on the heart, and the um, if you'd imagine that the heart of the hypothermic patient is really very stiff and poorly compliant. And so this means that you require higher filling pressure to maintain the same preload. So what is compliance? Well, this is going to get into uh, some physics, but change in pressure over change in volume is, is a definition of compliance. It's a derivative, if you want to get your money from your calculus. And uh, compliance curves are not linear. They're typically an exponential type curve. So if somebody has, and this is one of the things we say that ha saying that all my patients in my ICU should have a wedge of 18. What's really idiotic about that statement is that what we want to measure is the end diastolic volume, not the pressure. We talked about this in a previous podcast. Well, that relation between pressure and volume is compliance. And all everybody's heart is different uh, based on their compliance. A young, healthy person, I don't know why they would have a swan, but a young, healthy person with a swan-gans catheter may get the same preload from a volume standpoint with a much lower wedge pressure than the person who has a sick heart that is non-compliant from previous MIs and SCAR because you need to use more more pressure to extend that ventricle. Well, the heart of a hypothermic patient is non-compliant. It is stiff. And therefore, you need that higher filling pressures. The other issue that you have with the heart in a hypothermic patient are uh, cardiac arrhythmias, and, and they are relatively common. Risks uh, increase as the temperature drops about below 30 degrees centigrade. They usually will progress. Um, we said that initially these patients will be tachycardic, and then they'll kind of progress down to a sinus bradycardia, and then to atrial fibrillation, and then kind of a subsequent slowing of the ventricular response until you're down into ventricular fibrillation and ultimately a systole. Now, on the issue of, of, of cardiac arrhythmias, this comes down to one of the things that's really important that when we're transferring these patients, and sometimes we forget as, as patients are getting transferred from helicopters or ambulances to emergency room cots and eventually to the ICU, I think sometimes we're we're rather insensitive, and sometimes we move patients like they're, you know, nothing short of a, a, a bag of potatoes. This is, is very potentially harmful uh, in a hypothermic patient, and uh, because of, of all of the the sympathetic tone and vasoactive drugs and the hypothermia, these patients um, can actually uh, break down into uh, a ventricular fibrillation uh, by just uh, rough handling them. So it's really important that we, you know, we actually will, will talk that when we move a cold patient that we, we approach them uh, much like you know, you're handling a porcelain doll. And this same um, myocardial irritability also needs to be extrapolated into um, uh, 
the risks of, of placing intravenous catheters or even considering, you know, something like a PA catheter. Really, you need to be mindful that you're dealing with a patient who has a very irritable heart and that by if you advancing the wire too, uh, too far into the heart or by floating a PA catheter or a swan, that you really can precipitate a malignant arrhythmia. So um, the, the other issue is that a patient who has a hypothermia and you say you're putting a line in or floating a swan in, that, that unless they're rewarmed, the V-fib, uh, the, fib, the V-fib is very difficult, if not refractory, to therapy. So you can be floating a swan, so I'll give them lidocaine or give them amiodarone. That may not actually work. Um, usually you can't really get to a, um, a good perfusing rhythm in, in that case until the, the core body temperature rises to about 30 degrees centigrade. If defibrillation attempts with up to three shocks are unsuccessful, the patient's temperature is still about 30 degrees, um, you need to continue to try to escalate uh, your um, uh, uh, resuscitative efforts. Um, what used to be said, uh, Louis Goldfrank, who is an emergency physician uh, of, of great notoriety, who was at uh, a Bellevue Medical Center uh, in New York and as a toxicologist, he had kind of an expression, I remember reading a, an article that he wrote, or it was one of, one of the books that he wrote, was basically that a patient's not dead until they're warm and dead. And this is kind of what you need to be thinking of, is that you'll have a patient and they're, you know, they're in a cardiac arrhythmia, and they're hypothermic, you need to really get that patient warmed up because you're, all of the efforts that we typically do in regards to pharmacotherapy or defibrillation uh, are likely to be not successful in the, the presence of hypothermia. Now talking a little bit about some of the active rewarming techniques. And again, the active external rewarming are basically taking something that's hot and putting it next to the bot. And they are typically effective in raising the body temperature. And we're not talking about some of this. There's certainly more newer commercial devices that are, are employed. Uh, but some of the more common things that include use of hot water bottles, radiant heat that we talked about, um, such as... Um, um, the, the French rhyolites, I like to call them, force line air warming systems, heating blankets, uh, even immersion, which is like putting a patient in a tub of water between 32 and 41 degrees centigrade. Uh, these um, uh, techniques do have potential risks and potential complications. Uh, by rapidly external warming a patient, that you can cause uh, vasodilation. And what we said to be mindful is that we're talking about vasodilation, a patient who's already potentially hypovolemic from their cold diuresis. Um, and when they vasodilate, what happens is that you get a return of cold acidotic blood to the core. And this is often referred to as an afterdrop. So you get this acidotic cold blood. This may actually basically shock the heart and cause more cardiac arrhythmias or even just an overt cardiac arrest. So this is another thing you need to be putting into your calculus when you're moving these patients. You know, if they've got a limb that uh, you don't want to be raising their limb rapidly because, again, that cold acidotic blood will be rushed into the central circulation and cause these cardiovascular potential, these cardiovascular problems. As we talked about, hypotension and a hypovolemia uh, may occur from peripheral vasodilation and venous pulling. And again, therefore, it's essential that volume replacing with warmed IV fluids is not overlooked during this rewarming process. And I've actually seen this uh, mentioned in critical care board review courses. Now, because of the 
potential circulatory problems associated with active external rewarming. Combined modalities of external heat to the trunk as well as active core rewarming uh, may be beneficial and actually may reduce some of these potential complications. As a general rule, if your patient uh, is hemodynamically stable and has a perfusible rhythm and, and appears to be cardiovascular in a safe spot, uh, and they have a core temperature, say, between 29 and 32 degrees centigrade, they should be considered for active external rewarming. Um, in addition, uh, some internal uh, um, uh, rewarming can be uh, done by some various means. Uh, typically, the most common is the use of warm IV fluids. Uh, and uh, I would put a little asterisk of caution in this is that, you know, there are different types of, of warmers available. You know, do not just put a patient on a level one and actively resuscitate uh, without any uh, respect to the amount of IV fluid you're giving just because you're using a level one uh, fluid warmer. Uh, there are uh, fluid warmers that you can attach to pumps. And as you were resuscitating this patient with normal saline for the reasons we've mentioned above and, and, uh, re-expanding their intravascular volume, but you don't need to that, do that blindly by just giving them a liter uh, at a time. Other methods of uh, internal active rewarming, uh, we've already mentioned, uh, and that's the use of humidified uh, warm gases, and this can uh, raise somebody's body temperature um, on average about 1 to 2 degrees centigrade per hour, and, and it's really essential. Now, if the patient is hemodynamically unstable or they don't have an adequately refusing rhythm, you need to be actually a little bit more aggressive. Uh, this can use things like peritoneal lavage using heated crystalloids. Um, we'd say that um, in the old days, peritoneal lavage was used pretty commonly, uh, not used so much anymore. Uh, because of the availability of rapid access to CAT scanners and emergency departments or fast, um, ultra, fast use uh, of ultrasound scanners looking for intradominal fluid. But in the old days, we used to use peritoneal lavage with some regularity, uh, but you can certainly use warm IV fluids in peritoneal lavage. Closed pleural irrigation through large bore chest tubes um, uh, have a, certainly a more of a limited role. Uh, you can use bladder irrigations with Keys irrigations as well as uh, using warm fluids down to NG tubes and colonic irrigation. All those have been have some moderate success, but probably the, the granddaddy of them all is uh, cardiopulmonary bypass. Extracorporal rewarming, again, is like we said, this is the, 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 the grand method, the daddy of them all of, of effective rapid rewarming. This is through the use of basically a cardiopulmonary bypass circuit. Uh, and the, the core can be rewarmed directly, again, by using these circuits. Full cardiopulmonary bypass uh, using metasternotomy has been used in many centers. But when available, you can basically put somebody on bypass by using uh, fem-fem bypass as well. Um, it should be used uh, when it's available in all patients who have hypothermia, say less than 28 degrees centigrade, and, and lack a perfusing rhythm. Now, during severe hypothermia, patients usually appear to be dead. Patients may have dilated fixed pupils with lack of corneal or brainstem reflexes. Uh, they are pulseless. They can be apneic. Uh, because of the decreased oxygen requirements of cold organs, though even patients who suffer prolonged cardiac arrest may recover without serious long-term sequela. And again, this is the exception, not the rule. This is typically seen in, in children or very young adults. Um, and therefore, a lot of people are of the opinion that people should continue to resuscitate a patient until, again, their core body temperatures return to 32 degrees centigrade and the patient's unresponsive to resuscitative efforts once they're at 32 degrees. And that's kind of the idea. They're not dead until they're warm and dead. Other uh, things you need to be uh, mindful of are some um, common um, 
uh, problems associated with uh, hypothermia. We've already talked about alcoholism um, and people who are intoxicated uh, commonly uh, are at risk for the development of hypothermia, and therefore you need to be thinking about how you would prophylax these patients for uh, potential metabolic complications, namely uh, delirium tremens. So you should be giving these people IV and thiamine uh, uh, pretty typically, uh, and that should always be preceded by uh, administration of glucose because what you're trying to prevent there is Wernicke's encephalopathy. Um, and again, you would just want to give somebody, say, 50 to 100 mLs of um, D50. Uh, use of antibiotics, um, I don't know why you would do that. We used to do this uh, routinely when we thought about people who had aspiration pneumonitis, but now we uh, like to um, be treating infections and not be prophylaxing people as much as um, um, uh, we used to in days gone by. Now, the use of steroids is something you need to be considered. I'm not a big fan of giving everybody steroids, but again, when you go back and look at some of the causes that we mentioned for the development of patients who are predisposed to development of uh, hypothermia, a lot of them had endocrinopathies. So you need to be mindful of does your patient have some sort of history of steroid dependency or adrenal insufficiency or myxedema? Uh, and if so, you know, do you need to give them, say, 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone? The use of IV thyroid hormone replacement, uh, again, it should be restricted to patients who have a history of hypothyroidism or they've got some sort of clinical evidence that makes you think that they're having myxedema coma. Uh, or you look at them and they've got a big old scar across their neck and, you know, indicative of a, a thyroidectomy. Um, other things you need to be thinking about, obviously, is uh, after active rewarming, patients are at predisposition to develop pancreatitis. Um, and so uh, if they're uh, having an ileus, um, not tolerating a PO diet or nausea or vomiting uh, in days following a treatment hypothermia, uh, again, pancreatitis is something that you may see in this particular uh, uh, population of patients. So that is a brief review on some of the clinical uh, signs and symptoms and manifestations and treatment that you would see in an environmental hypothermia. Uh, you've been listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeffrey Guy.